Welcome to the Idea Space. I'm Yancey Strickler. Earlier this year, the venture capital firm Union Square Ventures announced a new $162 million fund to invest in companies and projects that mitigate or help us adapt to the climate crisis. This announcement was big news. USV is one of the most successful VC firms ever with Twitter, Etsy, Stripe, Coinbase, Duolingo, Twilio, and full disclosure, Kickstarter, among many others in their early stage investment portfolio. The entry of a top tier firm like USV into the climate crisis marks a real shift in humanity's response to climate change. This is what the uninhabitable earth author David Wallace Wells recently called the new climate self-interest He writes, a decade ago, many of the more ruthless capitalists to analyze climate change deemed it too expensive to undertake. Today, it suddenly appears almost too good a deal to pass up. Today on the Idea Space, we're joined by Albert Wenger, the VC at Union Square who's leading their climate efforts. I've known Albert for more than a decade. USV was an early funder in Kickstarter, and Albert and I have co-invested in climate change-related startups and worked on climate activism projects together, too. Albert's also the author of a fascinating book, especially for a VC, called World After Capital, that we'll talk about. My conversation with Albert was eye-opening and a must-listen for anyone who's concerned about climate change, which damn well better be all of us. Listen for Albert's views on how bad things are and how bad they'll get, why the solutions are better than we think, and a truly compelling and original vision for a world after capital. I want to start by quoting from the blog post announcing the new climate fund. And in the last paragraph you say, The USV Climate Fund is a straight-up venture fund. We believe that decarbonizing the economy and dealing with past emissions and their consequences offers many opportunities for building important new companies that can produce venture-type returns. I'm wondering, who are you speaking to in writing that, and why why is that important to say, a straight-up venture fund? Well, I think it's important to say in the sense that um... You know, some people are raising impact funds, um, and um, and we're not an impact fund firm. We believe that the things we've invested in have impact, um, but we also think that at the early stage that we invest, it's very hard to predict what impact something will have, right? So uh, I remember well when we first invested in Twitter, and everybody was like, oh, who cares about what somebody else had for lunch? And then... You know, some of the same people later were, Twitter's destroying democracy, how dare you fund this thing? So, you know, impact is very hard to predict. You know, take the first climate fund investment, Sylvia Terra, right? Um, they measure forests from space. This could be a huge unlock um, for, you know, getting people who own forests to actually get paid for what those forests contribute to the ecosystem. And so it might have a massive impact. It might not work at all, right? And so I just think that, for us at our stage to sort of try to quantify impact just feels like wrong. <laughs> it just feels like making stuff up and I don't like to make stuff up if I don't have to. So do you, do you see a connection between the level of impact on carbon drawdown or climate mitigation and potential revenue? Do you imagine those things are coupled? Yeah, yeah no, I, I, abs- absolutely. 
I think the very largest um, successes in terms of emissions reductions and drawdown will also be among the largest commercial successes. Um, now, some of those things will not be commercial. They'll be done, you know, as public um, investments and so forth. But yes, I, I do think so. It's already happening to a degree. I mean, if you look at the stock market, I mean, Tesla stock is way, way up. But it's not just Tesla, which is maybe a little bit of a case on its own. You look at NextEra, for example, which is a, you know, renewable energy producer, and their stock is way up. I believe people are recognizing that this isn't somehow optional, right? This is no longer a question of, will this happen? This is just how quickly will it happen? And I think the consensus now is it'll happen more quickly, thankfully, um, than, than you know people might have thought even a year ago. Happening more quickly, you mean like there being some actual systemic yeah. responses? The, well, there being, look, I, I believe this crisis is an existential crisis for humanity. And it is not going to get solved by entrepreneurs alone. It requires systemic changes, which require regulatory changes. Um, but conversely, it's not also not just going to get solved by the stroke of a regulatory pen either. It just takes both. And, and for some reason, we have come into this point where people really feel they need to take an either-or stance on everything, and they need to sort of denigrate the other side and sort of say they're not important and maybe doing more harm than good. I mean, you get a lot of people on the entrepreneurial VC side, like, oh, government, get out of the way, government is terrible. And conversely, you get a lot of people sort of we're like, oh, these entrepreneurs, Elon Musk is doing more harm than good. And if, if we just let government do it, I just feel it's such a silly, um, like, um, of course, it's going to take both. Like, it's always taken both. Whenever we've done anything successfully, it's taken both sort of the level of individual entrepreneurial initiative and the government getting things right. I mean, one of my classic examples is, is you know, like mobility. If you look at the car, for example, right? I mean... It took entrepreneurs to build cars, but it also took government to say, we're going to build some roads. We're going to agree on some rules of the road. Like, we're all driving on one side of the road. Like, that's a regulation thing. That's not a thing that some entrepreneur came up with, right? So I just I just think the history says it's going to take both. It, this is definitely going to take both. And we shouldn't be denigrating the other side. We should be figuring out the most effective way to work together to, to save us. Not to save the planet. Planet's going to be just fine. But to save us, to save humanity. Do you feel like, um, you know, where you, where you say this is a straight up venture fund, is this is this different than how funding for climate projects has been thought about before? Like, has it typically been thought of as impact or charity and you are explicitly bringing like a different kind of lens? Well, yes, we we definitely want to signal that lots of capital should be unleashed onto this because it's a straight up opportunity and that you don't need to sort of you don't need to have a charitable or a impact angle. Um, you know, impact, there's two sides that I, I, I'm concerned about. One is that a lot of people are slapping the impact label on funds that really aren't actually all that thoughtful about impact to begin with as a way of fundraising. Conversely, there's a huge amount of capital in the world total, and I think Part of what we're trying to signal is it doesn't matter if you are a fiduciary of capital, if you're not investing in this opportunity, you are missing out. And so, you know, um, I mean, 
Susan and I have also funded a bunch of um, divestment initiatives at different universities, including at, at Harvard, where you know several um, new um, overseers have been elected on an independently nominated slate, specifically around the idea of um, um, pushing divestment. I think it's clear at this point that you know fossil fuel uh, uh, portfolios are performing terribly and will continue to perform terribly. Conversely, this is where dollars should flow, and so. Yes, we do want to set a very clear signal also that, yes, if you are responsible for a pension fund, if you're responsible for a university endowment, if you're responsible for a large mutual fund, you should be actively investing in this and you should not need to go check whether it has an impact. So were the, were the conversations with potential LPs for this fund different for other USB funds? Like, is this a harder sell, easier sell? Well, it's interesting because I think we did a really good job bringing our our investors along on a bit of a journey. So um, we first started talking to our investors about climate in fall of 2019 at our annual meeting and basically gave a climate presentation and sort of tried to make two points. Um, the first point that there's been way more progress on potential solutions than people understand. So. People have generally heard that there's been progress on solar and batteries, but they don't realize that as a first approximation, over the last 10 years, each of those has gotten better by an order of magnitude, like by a factor of 10. So part of this was to tell people, look, the, the solutions that we have available have gotten dramatically better. And then the second half of it was to tell people, this is much worse than you think. You know, and so we do this thing where you know, we asked people to estimate how many Hiroshima sized nuclear bombs of excess heat we're adding to the atmosphere above the pre-industrial baseline. And we do this in real time and we give people options from one a year to, you know, one a second. And you put this out in a room of very intelligent people and you will, you know, center somewhere around one a day or so. And when, when you tell people that it's four per second, people are just floored. You know, people, people are floored at the physics, the extent, the size, the scale of the problem. And so we did that in 2019. And then, you know, we had made some investments and we started to talk about those investments. And so then when we went out to raise the fund, um, which we started doing after Labor Day of um, 2020, people knew it was coming. People knew why we were doing it. Uh, and so it went, I think, um, about as well as these things can. Um, and so... And, and I'm, I'm very happy to say that, you know, we, we raised this from mostly our existing um, limited partners, but we also added some people specifically to the climate fund who really understand um, that this is both this huge threat and this huge opportunity all wrapped into one. So you are a venture capitalist. Uh, you also uh, wrote a book, a book in progress called World After Capital which is fascinating on, on a lot of different points. And, and you share uh, a vision for where we are and where things are going. And I wanted to ask about a couple parts of it. And I'm going to quote, uh, quote you here for a moment. You write, prices are powerful because they efficiently aggregate information about consumer preferences and producer capabilities, but not everything can be priced. And increasingly, the things that cannot be priced are becoming more important than those that can. For example, the benefits of space exploration, the cost of the climate crisis, or an individual's sense of purpose. So is pricing the climate part of this project? Like, how, how do you think about this challenge for this situation? Yeah, so um, we can obviously put a price on carbon, uh, and we should be doing that. And um, 
I, I think there's momentum building for that, in part because companies are now voluntarily paying much higher sums per ton of CO2 than they have ever in the past. So, um, so, but when I say there can't be a price for the climate crisis, what I mean is the total amount of attention that needs to be devoted to fighting this, um, there is no price for that because uh, there is, it's such an extreme event. Um, we are looking at a potential extinction event for humanity. I'm not saying that in any sort of um, exaggerated way, that the physics of this are such that it may make the planet uninhabitable for humans, period, end of story. Um, and obviously, I think a few of us could survive in some way, but it wouldn't be pretty, right? And so, um, so I think that um, um, there is that the price mechanism will woefully under-allocate resources to this, right? Um, and the way I sometimes um, describe this is through what I call the alien invasion analogy, right? So um, we're adding roughly four Hiroshima-sized nuclear bombs of excess heat to the uh, atmosphere every second. If you had sort of alien spaceships hovering above Earth and dropping four Hiroshima-sized nuclear bombs in the atmosphere every second, we would literally drop everything we're doing, right? We would absolutely just be like, oh my God, they're trying to kill us by overheating the planet. We have to shoot these spaceships out of orbit. And, you know, we've made the movie Independence Day about it and whatever the heck the sequel was called. Um, but because it's not visible, right, because there's no signals of any kind, and by the way, this would be a command and control operation. This would be a World War II style mobilization of resources, right? Um, there's no way the market can produce a strong enough price signal to get enough of our attention, enough of our resources allocated. And so um, that's what I mean in this sort of, there's both incredible opportunities and also incredible threats. Let's take a totally different threat, which is, you know, sort of death from above. Asteroids, large asteroids hit the Earth every few million years. At this point, with our dense civilization and so forth, a big hit would kill tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people. Um, and yet the total amount of human attention that we're spending on this is minuscule. I mean, the number of people, for example, who work full-time, that's, that's all they do every day, to try and locate these objects are fewer than the people who work at a single busy McDonald's, right? That gives you some idea of like the complete mismatch between the threat and why, because the price system can't deal with events that happen once every million. Like who's, who's providing the demand, who's providing the supply. There is no price signal here. This is something that we have to wrap our head around and then we have to allocate resources to it independent of price signals. Well, you, you also write in World After Capital, think of the world as divided into an economic sphere where prices exist and a non-economic one. Market-based allocation of attention can only succeed in the former and to the extent that there are insufficient counterweights will do so at the detriment of attention allocated to the non-economic sphere. So think of the high-earning parent who doesn't spend enough time with their children, or the legions of science PhDs optimizing ad algorithms instead of working on the climate crisis. So, you know, is there a need for some kind of post-price collective reasoning, or is the answer to use money to just change where the incentives are? Well, um, I believe that... Um... You know, a big thrust of the book is about how do we free people up so that they are better in control of their attention, right? And so um, I don't think that that can be done with price signals, right? Because 
how do you know, for example, which, like, take foundational research, you know, like research on the fundamentals of science, right? Like, who's going to set a price for this? And how do you use a price? It's just, I just think it's a completely futile effort. Um, and uh, I think if anything, we're going to get those prices wrong, and then people are working on the wrong things, right? So I think it's much more important that we basically compress, in a way, the economic sphere, contain it. Um, and in the book, I make three proposals for how to do that. And I call them economic freedom, informational freedom, and psychological freedom. So one way to contain the economic sphere is by saying, look, you don't actually have to work to live, to survive, right? And that's some form of universal basic income. So if you just want to, like, move to a really cheap place and just think really hard about, like, quantum physics, you can go do so. Um, or let's take something much more prosaic. If you just want to go and take care of, you know, your friends or your family or wounded animals. I mean, there's a million things to do that are non-economic. Let's just enable people to go do that without then being like, oh my God, I don't know how to feed myself. I don't know how, where I can even live, right? Then informational freedom is how do we control these crazy devices instead of being controlled by them, right? I mean, these things are designed to attract every smidgen of our attention. Now, there are simple hacks, like I've set my phone to do not disturb. The only thing that makes my phone vibrate is one of my family members, immediate family members, nothing else. Um, but we should be able to program these supercomputers fully instead of being programmed by them. And that's what a lot of what the informational freedom is about. And then the psychological freedom is, is our brains just didn't evolve in this information environment that we live in now. Our brains evolved at a time when you saw a cat, there was an actual cat. And now the internet can produce an infinity of cat pictures for you. And um, the good news is that's something that we can work on our own, right? So the economic freedom and the informational freedom, those take some regulatory intervention. <clears throat> they take some consensus forming, some at least community building. Um, but psychological freedom is something each and every one of us can get started on, like, today. And that's all about developing some kind of mindfulness practice. So you, you write about the need to transition from what you call a job loop to a knowledge loop. So can, you, can you talk about what that is? Yeah, so, so you know, at the heart of um, this economic system is this job loop where you basically you have a job so that you can make money so that you can buy goods and services which are made by other people who also have a job. And, and that loop actually was a very good thing for quite some time. It, like, it worked, it produced, um, combined with markets and entrepreneurial activity, it produced much of the sort of material progress that we see around us. That's why we have like super cheap supercomputers that we can carry around with us. But the problem is at this point, it's kind of too many people are caught up in it and too many people work in what David Graeber, the late David Graeber called bullshit jobs, right? And too many people are fundamentally unhappy with their jobs, deeply frustrated. But, um, and also, you know, basically these jobs are not like sources of fulfillment in their lives. They're not sources of joy, they're sources of stress. Like they're scheduled by some computer, you have to show up here. If you don't show up, like you lose your job. It's just, and so, you know, conversely, there's this other loop, which is the knowledge loop, which has operated as long as humanity has been around, but which we can use digital tools to turbocharge. And that's that loop where you learn something, then you take the thing you learn to create something new, and then you share that again, you know? So, and um, interestingly enough, much as YouTube is, deeply problematic on one end. On the other end, it's also wonderfully beautiful because all these people who learn something like a new skill, they learned how to play the guitar and now they've made a song and they put it on there and then somebody else hears that song and somebody's inspired by that song to create their own song. And we just need to shift 
a lot of human attention is currently caught up in this job loop, um, and we need to shift that attention and make it so that it can participate in the knowledge loop. Uh, and you know that's where these three freedoms come to play because it will let us exit for the most part the job loop um, and participate in it to a much smaller, much more voluntary degree. And so the way I think about this is, if you looked at the U.S., let's say in like 1750, 1780, you would find that 80 plus percent of the population spent their entire time in uh, basically agriculture to support, you know, 20 percent of the population doing other things. And today we've shrunk that sphere down to like 3% of the population um, are in that sphere. I believe if we make this transition to what I call the knowledge age successfully, like 100 years from now, we will look back and be like, oh my God, 80% of human attention was tied up in this economic sphere, and we've now shrunk it to 10% or 5% of human attention. It does, doesn't mean it, won't, it will go away. Agriculture didn't go away. We still have agriculture. The economic sphere is not going to go away. There'll be people having jobs and getting paid for it and so forth. It just won't occupy as much of our attention as it does today. So you, you write, one of my fundamental claims is there is enough capital in the world to meet everyone need, everyone's needs. And so the, if there's plenty of slack today, that capital is no longer the binding constraint for humanity going forward. And so the kinds of constraints or resources you talk about instead are being knowledge, coordination, motivation, energy, these sort of these things that are maybe more fundamental below that economic layer that now are becoming newly important. And you're saying yeah. that in this scenario, those things are being maybe more actively created or contributed to? Yeah, I mean, I have an even, I guess, more reductionist view, which obviously there's a certain danger in, uh, in, in, in reductionism, but I think it's quite helpful, which is that I think fundamentally um, humanity has gone through three different binding constraints. When we were foragers, it was food. You try to either found enough food or it starved uh, or migrated. Then it became, under the agricultural age, it became land. You either had enough arable land in which you could grow plenty of crops, in which case you could have a flourishing society, or you might have some climate trouble, you know, um, and all of a sudden, you know, your, your society would collapse. Um, and then in the industrial age, it was capital. And when I say capital, it's important that I don't mean financial capital, because we don't drive around in gold bars or dress ourselves in dollar bills. I mean physical capital, machines, infrastructure, buildings, and so forth. And when I say we have enough capital, what I mean is that you know, just look at China, like they can build entire cities in the space of a year, or during COVID, they built entire hospitals in the space of a couple of days, right? Um, or look at what Tesla is doing with the gigafactories, right? We don't have a shortage of the ability to make factories and to crank out stuff. So what is the constraint now? I really think there's just one constraint now, and that's attention. Like, are we paying attention to the things that matter? Or are we distracted into things that are ultimately counter our own personal interests and certainly our societal interests. And so um, it's in that regard that I think we have enough capital. And I think things like energy and so forth, um, I don't think we're ever going to run out of it. There's enough sunlight hitting the earth every day to power our energy needs many times over. I'm also very confident that we'll figure out how to make nuclear fusion work. Um, it's just a question of paying enough attention to the problem to solve it. So um, so I really think that that some of these other constraints that people tend to worry about a lot, like resource constraints, you know, people are like, oh, we're going to run out of phosphorus or whatever. I just don't think there's any reason to believe that. Um, 
because there's so much of it relative to our needs and there's more of it in space. Um, but we won't get there if we don't really pay attention to the right things, right? I mean, and so, so to me, this allocation of attention, both at the individual level and at the collective level, that is the fundamental problem that we're facing today. In the announcing the USV Climate Fund, you compared the climate transition to be like the transition to the digital age, which you were also a part of in, in, in multiple ways. What happened in the early stages of digital transformation that you're looking for or thinking about happening now with climate? Well, I, I, there is a certain parallel here, right? So if you think about the dot-com bubble, um, you know, people were sort of, uh, laughing about some of the excesses of the dot-com bubble and people were sort of saying, ha, oh, these silly web van and pets.com people and so forth. But let's face two things. One, it's because of those things that we put a huge amount of infrastructure in place. You know, we put a lot of bandwidth in place, fiber, data centers and so forth. And guess what? Pets.com was a great idea. There's several multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies now that do exactly the same thing. They were just too early. Um, and similarly, if you think about climate, there was a clean tech bubble. The height of the clean tech bubble was around 2007. Um, a lot of people lost money, but at the same time, we wouldn't be on solar where we are today, which is like a cent per kilowatt hour, um, if it hadn't been for that bubble. So yes, there is a lot of analogy, which is there was a sort of a completely euphoric over the top phase where if you invested at the wrong moment in time, you lost everything because things went either to zero or they went down 90 plus percent. Um, but every big technological transformation has benefited from such a bubble. So these bubbles may be, you know, at some level, like from the individual investor perspective, very negative or irrational. But from an overall social perspective of drawing enough capital to a sector, they actually play a very important role. And uh, Carlotta Perez, who's written extensively about this, has a wonderful book on sort of the history of technology and, and these financial um, markets. And... You know, she's documented this across many technologies, you know, going back to the railroad, for example. So I actually think there's a lot of parallels and, and, and they're, 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 they make me optimistic um, because we've, we had the clean tech bubble. We are in a much better place today. So in, in the thesis announcement, you also wrote mitigation is working on the causes of the climate crisis through emissions reduction or drawdown of greenhouse gases. Adaptation is working on the consequences of the climate crisis, such as increased risk of crop failure. Adaptation is part of our thesis in recognition that the climate crisis is not some distant future event, but rather playing out in the here and now. So what are you expecting to see in you know, the here and now and the near future in terms of climate change and, and how we're responding? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we, we are seeing it. You know, I, I grew up in a part of Germany where when I was growing up, you know, 95 degree day was a hot day, like hot enough that we would, you know, they would cancel school basically. They have 110 degree weeks now, you know, um, and so, uh, you know, parts of India get so hot that you can't actually survive outdoors um, now. Um, and um, and we're just still in the early phase of this process. So, you know, we need to obviously invest in mitigation. That's a crucial, crucial priority. But we, we're no longer in a situation where we can say we can just ignore the need to, for adaptation. And, you know, um, 
indoor farming is a great example. We need to build a lot more indoor farming because it's climate controlled. It has guaranteed yield. Uh, and, um, you know, we cannot be as dependent as we are on, you know, natural rainfall and, and, and what the natural temperature is going to be. There are other benefits once we get indoor farming right too, which is, you know, you can grow things right next to where they're consumed and uh, you have less transportation and so forth. But, but, and ultimately have much denser land usage so we can give some of the land that we're currently using for agriculture back to wildlife. And also you can give it, you know, use it for drawdown. So plant a lot of trees, for example. Um, but it, it is very important. And I think people need to recognize um, that, uh, again, that we should, and, and, and I think Greta Thunberg deserves super great credit here. Like the house is on fire already. You know, this is not a, um, the house may be on fire at some point in the future. The house is already on fire. We need to act accordingly. So last question, what would you tell the average concerned person that they should be doing or thinking in regards to climate right now? Well, I think, I think there's a number of different things. The, the, the first is, um, to the extent that you're financially well off, um, you should go um, make changes to your own lifestyle, like go adopt an EV, go replace your you know, propane or oil heating with a with you know a geothermal heat pump or just a regular heat pump, um, depending on where you live, um, you know there's lots of individual action. Um, the second thing is become active in some kind of climate movement, right? I mean there's lots of climate movements. Um, we now have a new administration, but you know, and it's taking more aggressive steps, but they're still not aggressive enough relative to the size of the problem. Um, so there's an ongoing need for activism, uh, and you know um, I think. Um, and that's also something, of course, you can do without money. I mean, you can just show up and you can call your representatives and you can, you know, um, uh, participate in protests uh, that are absolutely needed. Um, this is not a oh, bunch of entrepreneurs are getting going, so like there's no need for activism. We absolutely need, uh, there's a continued need for activism. Uh, but I think it's also uh, important um, to start by informing yourself and just by reading more and um, by understanding better what the extent of it is. Uh, and then there are also places you can purchase offsets. Um, and, um, you know, the offset market is evolving very rapidly. There used to be a lot of low-quality offsets, things that really didn't move the needle. You know, people were sort of like, oh, we're, you know, flaring some methane over here, and so we should get paid for that. Now there are very high-quality projects where there's actual reforestation, for example, that, uh, wouldn't be happening if it wasn't paid. Um, so there's lots and lots of things um, that you can do uh, that combine some degree of individual action and some lobbying for um, systemic change, which is required. Well, Albert, thanks for taking the time to talk and to walk us through this. And I wish you world world-changing success. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure.